Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. We are excited to be doing another remote interview today, Monday the 18th of May. So let me hand things off to my co-host, Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, to offer his welcome. Thanks, Darren. It's a great pleasure to welcome Harinda Sidhu to the uh, podcast. Harinda recently returned from posting as the Australian High Commissioner in New Delhi, and we wanted to have a uh, discussion with her about India. But to be honest, we could have taken the conversation in any number of different directions. Before she went to India, Harinda headed the multilateral division of DFAT while Australia was on the UN Security Council. She spent five years in the Department of Climate Change working on international issues. Indeed, she's a veteran of the Copenhagen Summit and no doubt still have the scars to show of that battle, Harinda. She spent four years in the Office of National Assessments. She worked on defence policy, border protection and fiscal issues in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. And after joining DFAT in 1987, she had postings in Damascus and Moscow. She speaks Arabic and Russian and has degrees in both economics and law from the University of Sydney. And most recently, Harinda, you've been deep in the government's coronavirus response as well. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Alan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Hi, Darren. Well, let's begin with India itself. The way it acts and interacts with the other states of the Indo-Pacific is obviously one of the key dynamics for our region's future. So I'm interested in how you would describe the spectrum of views you found in New Delhi about the role India can and should be playing in the world. Now I'm talking about outside government as well as inside it. So are there big differences or is it a broad consensus and is it changing? It's a really good question because I think I was in India at a very interesting time in the evolution of its, not just foreign policy, but I think most of its policy settings. What we're seeing, I suppose, is a shift towards a modernization, if you want to use that language, in its policy settings. So to the extent that there is a difference of view, and remember, of course, we are talking about India. It is a very busy and vibrant democracy. The state of intellectual debate is very active and vibrant, actually. So you'll get a spectrum of views anyway. But if I had to characterise the spectrum, it would be from folk who are, I guess, what you call traditionalists, who tend to adhere to long-standing positions and relationships that India has built up pretty much since independence, a worldview that comes from there, right through to what we're seeing now under Modi's India, which is a forward-looking, aspirational sense about the country, uh, a desire to play not just a bigger part in the world as India's due as a civilizational power, which is really the one thing that there is consensus about across the board, but actually to start to shape that world in India's interests. And that really talks a little bit about how much confidence you're actually seeing. That word comes up a lot, actually, when you're talking 
uh, with Indian policymakers nowadays when you're talking about India, a sense that India is confident about its place in the world, that it sees that it can actually start to shape it and that it can actually start to influence outcomes in the world. What that really sort of represents, I suppose, is also the demographics in India. I mean, something like half its population is aged under 30. And I think Mm. that demographic change is really driving a whole bunch of changes in the way India sees itself and the way it sees the world. So when I was there, I saw that shift happen practically in front of my eyes, that already by the time I was there, Modi had taken the trend that we'd seen going forward in previous governments, sort of engaging more with the United States or that sort of thing, and had really accelerated it. So you see a much faster engagement and deeper engagement, perhaps beyond the comfort zones of many, with the United States, with Japan, but even further afield, including with Australia. So we ended up being quite a big beneficiary of that change. You see the adoption of the Indo-Pacific as a strategic concept when Modi speaks to the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2018. You see India engaging in a wide range of minilateral engagements, including with us and with Japan. Of course, it joins the Quad. So all those things are happening, I suppose, at the forward-looking aspirational end. But I think to the extent that there is a debate, there is a question still about, well, are they throwing the baby out with the bathwater? How far do you move away from longstanding Mm. and traditional relationships? And I think India continues to try to square that circle. I think it will come out with something quite unique because I don't feel there's anyone in the foreign policy establishment, either inside government or outside it, that thinks that they should walk away from longstanding relationships. But it does lead sometimes to some awkwardness, you know, meeting with President Trump one day and President Putin the next day, that sort of thing. Yeah, we're talking about those sort of long-standing Indian traditions. I saw the other day that Prime Minister Modi participated in a non-aligned movement meeting. And to be honest, I didn't actually know that the the non-aligned movement still existed non-aligned against who. But the NAM, of course, was India's original instrument for international leadership. So I wondered, is there anything to see here? Yes. Well, surprise, surprise, the NAM is alive and kicking. But it is really interesting, right? It was the first time in his prime ministership Modi actually attended a NAM summit. In fact, he was the first prime minister, Indian prime minister in a very long time not to attend the NAM summit when he came into power. But again, this is about seeing old partnerships in new ways. So with the COVID crisis, you've seen what has become quite an activist foreign policy agenda play out in all kinds of different arrangements. And so the NAM is part of an ongoing part of India's big engagement out of the COVID crisis. It's a a group that is longstanding, where they've had loads to do with over the years, lots of deep relationships that they can tap into as mm. part of their efforts to shape the global uh, response to COVID. So it's not NAM in the sense that you're thinking about, Alan. It, it's a much more modern, <laughs> sorry to keep using that word, but much more modern take on the NAM. Mm. Well, part of India's attraction as a partner for Australia is, of course, that it is the world's largest democracy. But, of course, every country has domestic challenges that cause concern amongst its partners. Um, And one challenge facing India is Hindu nationalism, which at times, in my mind at least, 
raises doubts about the country's pluralist credentials. Now, Alan and I have debated at length on this podcast whether and how the character of China's political system matters for understanding its global behaviour. So I want to ask a version of the same question about India. In his video address to the Rasina Dialogue back in January of this year, Prime Minister Morrison said that India would play a central role in shaping the future of the Indo-Pacific. And so for those of us who are wondering what that role will be, to what extent do we need to look inside India to its model of governance, to its institutions and to its politics to find answers? Yeah, it's a really good way of thinking about it. You know, how much is what India is as a polity manifesting in its behaviour internationally? And I, th I think there is actually a lot to it. So let's just think for a minute about what we're talking about here, because I think it's very easy to be distracted by Hindu nationalism in some way. It's not to say it's not a serious issue. Of course it is. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture, what we're talking about is India as it is, as a parliamentary democracy with a constitution that's underpinned by very many of the same values in our political system. It's a democracy that's actually pretty resilient so it's shown in the past, for example, that it can bounce back from attempts to subvert or limit its governance. If you take the emergency period in the 1970s, for example, mm. you know, you wouldn't say that that was a permanent departure from its democratic credentials. The other feature of Indian democracy is also its size and complexity. So it's got 29 states and several other union territories. For a start, mm. elections are happening all the time, and that really does mean that its democracy is self-correcting. I mean, the Indian voter is smart, it's unsentimental, they'll vote out any government that isn't delivering. So if you're going to have to govern inside India, you're going to have to be able to deal with complexity, you're going to have to be able to navigate a wide range of cultures, languages, interests, and ideology, any Indian prime minister campaigning in Tamil Nadu, if you're from the north, is campaigning for votes from a voter base that don't even speak the same language. Just think about that. And, and amazingly, they're able to form consensus out of all of that diversity. So what you have is a leadership that's more comfortable than most with ambiguity. They're less inclined to think of things in binaries. Mm. And... They also recognise that their democratic credentials are a tremendous source of soft power. So they tend, in any case, because of the way they have to govern internally, to move towards consensus rather than coercion, because coercion just doesn't stick in India. And if you think about what we're trying to do in the Indo-Pacific, that's kind of where we're going. It's kind of ideally suited for that sort of arena. So India is generally looking to build coalitions rather than act unilaterally. And you're already seeing that, you know, the outreach to the NAM or the sorts of things it's doing in terms of actively working its plurilateral diplomacy, its pitch to be the pharmacy of the world, working with small groups mm. of key partners. That's the kind of, kind of behaviour that you see actually that makes sense when you reflect on its internal political structure. Harinda, one of the points of continuity rather than change in India's view of the world seems to come through its approach to international economic issues. Australian and Indian approaches to the international system have differed quite markedly 
on some of the economic issues like Australia's continued disappointments at India's reluctance to support an open international trading system, whether through the WTO or APEC, or most recently its failure to sign on to the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP. Is there any sign of that changing, or on the contrary, will the post-pandemic world reinforce those instincts for autarky, do you think? So... You've got a number of things buried in this question. I might need to unpick them a little bit, Alan. Unpick away. (laughs) I'd say for a start that Australia and India share the same approach to the international system. I mean, we really are both very strong supporters of the multilateral system. And India would also say, if you ask them, that they are a strong supporter of an open international trading system and of a well-functioning WTO, because India's not in APEC yet. And that actually makes sense when you look at the world from where India's perspective is. India's economy is much more globally integrated and trade exposed than you would imagine. So if you take recent statistics from the World Bank, in 2018, India's trade to GDP ratio was 43%. That's exactly Australia's trade to GDP ratio in 2018. Mm. So they have a real vested interest in an open trading order. They just have a different idea about how to achieve that. And then the second thing about this sort of shift to autarky as a result of COVID is that we've got to 43% since the 1991 economic reforms. My view is I don't think they're ever going to go back there. But what India is experiencing is it's just not immune to the kinds of global trends we see anywhere else. So there's a nostalgia for a return to the philosophy of economic self-sufficiency of the past that you start seeing rising there. And that is true. But then, frankly, that is as true of our economy as well in this circumstance. We've been an open economy for a very long time, and yet we're still hearing people now in the face of these concerns about the resilience of global supply chains arguing that we must return to some extent to a form of protectionism and support for industry. So it's not surprising that you're having that conversation in India. But I think one thing that I would observe is that there isn't yet a strong economic debate in India which links the fact of its global economic integration to a conclusion that lowering trade barriers will actually be good for India as it was for Australia. So we drew that conclusion out of hard experience. It hasn't quite yet happened in India. And there isn't a conversation that's drawing a link between openness to trade and economic strength that translates into strategic weight. And I think that link is actually very openly contested in a number of places, given what we've experienced Mm -hmm. as a result of this crisis. But it is actually starting to happen. And Shiv Shankar Menon, the former National Security Advisor, has just written something for Brookings, which starts to explore that link. But it is an article of faith right now in India that if India were to open its economy to imports and trade, it would be swamped by more competitive economies. There's no conversation really about competitiveness, even though, in fact, India has huge competitive strengths as we're starting to see. Mm. So I think we've really got to think about how that translates to how we actually engage with India and recognise that India really did come very close to joining RCEP. I was pretty much on the record as saying, you know, how very disappointed I was 
that India didn't join. You were on the record, weren't you? I was. <laughs> I, was I was pretty open about it, actually. But, you know, also the door's open. And I, I really think that we should allow that debate to take root and encourage India in that direction, share our experience. And I have quite a bit of faith that it will get there at some point. But, you know, there's a reason why Peter Varghese's international India economic strategy had a 20-year time frame. It's just not mm-hmm. going to happen overnight, but it's on the path. You might think that some of the um, consequences of the pandemic will be damaging for India. I mean, there's you know, a number of countries now talking about the need to repatriate supply chains on things like pharmaceuticals, which are really central for India, and the same, I suppose, for some of the services industries that have been outsourced uh, to India as unemployment rises in other parts of the world, they might also be onshored again. Has that debate begun? Look, I think we can speculate about all these things. My sense is that you'll probably see some reversal at the margin for a period, but in practice it will be very surprising if India goes back, if any of us go back to where we were 20 or 30 years ago in terms of the way the world was connected. So I think you might see that to some extent, but in the end a comparative advantage is a comparative advantage and India really has very, very strong advantages Mm. in terms of its human capital, in terms of its scientific expertise, in terms of its pharmaceutical industry and medical industry. In fact, all those things are its great asset, strategic asset at this point. So India will face a hit to its economy the way all of us have. The real question is, how they and we navigate our way out of that. Mm. Harinder, I had a a question about the character of Indian leadership of the international system, and you've kind of spoken to that in your answers to the past few questions, but I'll try to bring those threads together now. In the same Rasina video, Prime Minister Morrison spoke of wanting to achieve and preserve a, a, quote, sound platform of strategic security, and that, quote, India's power and purpose will be of vital importance to the region. And like I said earlier, Alan and I spend a lot of time thinking about what Chinese leadership looks like, and I indeed in doing research into this. And so I wanted to ask, putting aside whether and how India gets there, can we assume at some point in this century, India becomes a great power, a global power, um, and the, the one that has the kind of impact in shaping the international order that the US has had for the past 70 years and that China is beginning to have now? The two-part question is, what is India's pitch for leadership of this order? What's attractive about the Indian model of order? And second, what would be some of the the characteristics of an international order that was shaped by or even led directly from New Delhi? Yeah, so so I think parallels between India and China are drawn all the time. And what's very interesting about the two countries is how different they really are, even though they're neighbours. So I always found that a source of great interest. But I think what you'll end up with is almost a mirror image of the kind of leadership you've been thinking about with China. So India will be, you know, more focused on rules and institutions, more tending towards politics and security rather than the use of economic tools, and largely a preference for multilateralism. You asked about the pitch. I had another look at Prime Minister Modi's address to the NAM summit 
And I've, I really can't think of a better pitch than what he puts out there because that really is what it says. It would be a disaggregated order, I think. Led, an order led by New Delhi would be one that would be much more focused on networks and coalitions. It would be relatively more balanced and egalitarian. And it would probably revolve around a number of powers rather than one or two great powers. So Modi cites this Hindu text a lot, Vasudheva Kutumbakam, this phrase from the Hindu text, which actually translates as the world is one family. And he mm. keeps talking about a model of globalization based on fairness, humanity, and equality. And it really just reflects the fact that India is not going to be able to have the economic capability to offer big financial incentives. A soft power pitch. Mm, mm. It's a pitch that's grounded in democratic credentials. So we're not going to give you lots of money. But, you know, Modi says at one point, which really stuck with me, he says, India is a developing country and a free society. And I think that's the thing that ends up being attractive, that while it'll still be a large economic power, it'll be one that will be important and influential in the world, but here's this other thing it brings to it. doesn't overwork that, I think, the, as a pitch, but I think that that's pretty important. And I think that that's also what sits underneath its drive for reform of institutions, getting themselves on the UN Security Council, which we support, wanting to see a reform of global governance to reflect current realities, discussion about inclusion and inclusivity. What will be interesting to see is at the moment it means including India, but if India rises to be a great power, what does that look like in terms of including other countries into institutions, those sorts of things. Mm. I think that would be a very interesting thought experiment, actually. Mm. And does COVID-19 sort of alter this trajectory? I remember reading some very dire predictions in, in international media about how the virus would be catastrophic for India itself. But so far, it seems that it's doing pretty well. And I've been noting Prime Minister Modi's sort of striking activity on the global stage during this crisis. There was his intervention at the G20, calling for the new take on globalisation that you've mentioned. And do I remember that the extraordinary virtual summit was India's suggestion? In any event, it's been also active in its own neighbourhood, supplying pharmaceuticals to many countries in need. So what? how is COVID affecting this trajectory and what does a post-COVID India look like as a partner for Australia? Yeah, so... One thing I've been really fascinated by is actually how India's managed the lockdown. I, when I talk to my friends in Delhi, 1.3 billion people have mm. stayed at home. That's pretty extraordinary for a country that really doesn't have that kind of capacity to enforce, you know, use a bureaucracy or its police forces, et cetera, to enforce that. And that's come about really through this whole, whole soft power thing where Modi's just appealed to people to do that. He calls it a citizen-led response. Mm. Of course, had some downsides. You know, you've read about the plight of the migrant workers, for example, and it may be challenging to sustain, but you're right, they've done pretty well. I think what India sees is that in foreign policy terms, the COVID crisis is probably accelerating some trends that have already been apparent in the world before the crisis, and particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And I think it recognises also that the link between strategic position and economic strength, that those who recover economically better and sooner will actually have more strategic weight. But it's also seeing what we're all seeing, which is there's no clear global leadership on the pathway to health recovery or global recovery. I think that that's what's driving this activism. 
And in fact, you wouldn't be seeing this if India hasn't already for the last five or eight years started to step up and take a more activist role anyway internationally. So this isn't a kind of an extension of where they've been, probably an acceleration of where they've been. There are opportunities here for India to, I think, gain more space in the strategic environment, but in a constructive way and to start to take that shaping forward, I think. Um, you know, drawing on the great assets, which is its pharmaceutical industry, its medical expertise and those sorts of things, and actually deploying it. So kind of weirdly enough, a health crisis has played to mm. India's strengths because that's mm. exactly the convergence of where it's been to date what it can bring to help solve the problem. And it gives it real ballast to take leadership forward. So I think depending on where we end up after this, if India does secure a kind of a different space, a greater space in the strategic environment, if it gains greater experience in leading global initiatives, which it's already started doing actually for the last little while, then I think it would become for us at least, a much more worthwhile partner in the region. Well, that really brings us to Australia's relationship with India. When I was writing about the history of Australian foreign policy, I came to the conclusion that every Australian government since 1947 had discovered India at least once in its term of office, uh, decided that more should be invested in the relationship, exchanged ministerial visits, made speeches, but then it would all ebb away. I think there were understandable reasons for that, but this time may be different. From your perspective, is it? I guess you're going to say yes, <laughs> but uh, why is that? So, Alan, by remarkable coincidence, I pulled out your book <laughs> and I read your entry on India. It didn't take me long because it didn't occupy a lot of space. But you say something right at the end, right, of the entry on India. You say... In the absence of any driving economic, strategic or political interests, the relationship under both Whitlam and Fraser remained limited, the Australia-India relationship, that is. And I think that that's the key and that's what's changed. So textbook example of why shared values alone is not going to give you a worthwhile relationship. What's happened since in the last decade or so? India's changed. So there's the demographic change I talked about, the sort of the forward-looking engagement, the fact that its economy is on track to be one of the world's top three economies, depending on how we go at the other end of this crisis. It's moved to shed historical baggage about engaging with the West and particularly with the United States. So that gives us more comfort to engage with India. Second thing has happened, Australia's changed. We have started talking about the Indo-Pacific. And I think we probably weren't so conscious about it, but it does draw India into our frame. We are thinking more about the Indian Ocean as a region. Suddenly mm. there is a strategic overlap. The kinds of geopolitical challenges we're facing start to look the same for India and Australia. Also, demographically, we've changed. The Indian diaspora in Australia is a significant glue it anchors the relationship as it has done, as every diaspora does with every one of our international relationships. And that's grown dramatically in the last 10 or 15 years. And of course, India's economic size is also very attractive to us. And then the third thing that's happened, of course, the world's change, which sort of sits underneath all of that. China's rise, the implications of that. It's exposed our comfortable assumptions about how the world 
works. And so those things that we've always called shared values, what I always call the boilerplate text of the Australia-India relationship, those are now shared strategic assets. Those are the things that actually give us a reason to work together in the current strategic environment. So I really do think that this is sustainable. I mean, we definitely saw it over the four years I was in Delhi, the uptick in India-Australia engagement was quite phenomenal. I mean, in the space of four years, I saw defence engagements quadruple, for example. Mm. Um, And there are many, many more things that we have in common than we don't. I'm not saying it's all going to be plain sailing from here on in, but actually there's a great deal of convergence and more than I think we've ever seen historically. But I don't think that this is a short-lived thing. I really do think it's a sustained engagement. We are in a very different place now. Did you get the sense that the Indian view, or at least the view of many in the political class in New Delhi, that Australia is a slightly derivative offshoot of the Anglosphere is changing and what's driving that? Yeah, I think it really has. I think... Is it fair to say that that was true? Yeah, oh, definitely. I really think there's still a sort of a large chunk of people who see Australia as a kind of, you know, very old-fashioned view, I suppose, a British colonial outpost, which Mm. surprises me and would surprise most Australians, I think. We just don't see ourselves that way. But it's actually changed a lot. I think, so let me just follow on from my last answer, which is, you know, the fact that we've framed our strategic concept as the Indo-Pacific, we've engaged more with India. We now have a raft of uh, working groups and ministerial commissions and visits and the tempo of engagement is much higher than before. So what does that mean? We are evolving a more sophisticated understanding of how each other sees the world. So we're not just aligning, but we're actually deepening the understanding of each other. Why does Australia take this position? Why does India take that position? We've got to that level of the conversation, which means it's actually much more sophisticated. It's also helped that we've been able to generate a little product differentiation with the big powers. Um, So when India sees Australia disagreeing with the United States on trade policy, for example, or when it sees Australia take a position expressing concern about China's actions in the South China Sea, for instance, it starts to develop an appreciation of where we're coming from. Things like the Pacific step up, I think we've started to see Indians more understand, the Indian system understand that we carry strategic weight in our own right and that we're not entirely dependent on another power to to do things with. As India started to engage more with ASEAN, I think there's a growing appreciation of the depth and the longevity of the Australian relationship with Southeast Asia. And again, you know, the fact that the diaspora just anchors all of that in a very realistic, granular and grounded picture about Australia. I think that's also been very helpful. Well, let's talk a bit more about the diaspora. There are, I think, nearly 600,000 Australian residents who were born in India, and that's more, I think, than the number who were born in New Zealand. But we've seen such a lot of discussion about the role of the Chinese-Australian community and less about the uh, Indian-Australian community. Now, you've pointed to several ways in in which it's become more central to the uh, relationship. How does it manifest itself, though, in, in the work of the High Commission and the High Commissioner 
in New Delhi and and what's India's view of its own diaspora? Yeah, it's very interesting for me. The size of the diaspora now, I think, is kind of quite significant. You know, when my family came to Australia in 1974, I actually looked this up. There were fewer than twenty thousand people of Indian origin in Australia, so that mm. six hundred thousand. I think it's actually more than that. It's probably edging well past seven hundred and fifty thousand now. So it's quite a significant proportion. Mm. So speaking as the High Commissioner, I think that what I found with the diaspora is they're great asset. As I've already said, they transmit back to India that the volume of the tourists, students, uh, temporary workers that. There are significant numbers of Indians in India now who get a picture of Australia that's more real, but also that these people, when they finish studying in Australia, go back to India, when they've been to Australia for a holiday, they become great advocates for Australia. I mean, we just sell ourselves. We really do. And so that was really useful. So, you know, there I am trying to promote the India economic strategy in 2018. And who do we reach out to? It's the diaspora who actually help us form links and actually help us take that forward. I think we can over-egg this. I think that we can put too much on the diaspora to advance the relationship. But it is important that we have a constituency that feels positively about the relationship and wants Australia and India to have a strong relationship. Helpfully, it's a constituency that votes so it attracts the attention of the political class in Australia. And I think that that is translating sometimes into policy, which is, when you're the High Commissioner, a very good thing. <laughs> how, how India sees... I won't probe you further on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just doing my work for me. But, you know, of course, how India sees this diaspora is kind of interesting because I was thinking about this. Modi's trademark is these big gatherings. He, he did one at the Ace Arena in 2014 here in Australia. He did Howdy mm. Modi last year. I don't know if you mm. saw that in Houston. And they were kind of extraordinary in scale. But I don't think that means necessarily that India directs its diaspora to act on its behalf. It's, it doesn't translate as crudely as that. What you do have as a result of those actions is that it builds a sense of identity and a connection with India amongst the diaspora. And diaspora is very varied things. I mean, you know, there are people of Indian descent like myself whose family have been out of India for generations. So you can't always do that. But I, I think you're seeing in the United States and in Canada where the Indian diaspora themselves have quite significant influence in business and in politics. And I think Indians celebrate that and they're very keen to make sure that those people feel connected and supportive of the relationship. If I can ask uh, the reverse question then, Harinder, about the Australian diaspora in India, mm. which I don't think much attention is normally paid to, but it's been in the news lately given the challenges that the Australian government has faced getting everyone home during the coronavirus crisis. So what's the size of the Australian community in India and what are they doing so the size is about 40,000 or 50,000 Australians in India. And that mm. seems like a lot, but the large majority, I would say, are Australians of Indian descent who may be in India for extended periods of time working mm. or looking after family or being with family or visiting family. And I think that's become clear as we've done these repatriation flights. These are people who've gone home to visit family. That's not unusual. We would expect that, I think, anywhere 
Um, we have some Australians working in business, either in Australian businesses or international ones, but there's still not a large cohort. And then you're starting to see things like the new Colombo plan, which really surprised me. The numbers of Australian students who go to India, that's still not huge, but it, it was about a thousand last year. So quite a significant number. I think that's kind of the size of it. And, you know, we, we really did start to focus on it, as you say, as we did these repatriation flights. I think the, the team in India have now, I think it's been 15 flights and over 4,000 people have been repatriated and that mm. still continues. So it's been a mm. huge effort. You've referred a couple of times to your own family background. So I just wonder if we could talk a bit about your experiences as being a woman as a head of mission in India and being a woman of Indian heritage in that job, what were the advantages and what were the disadvantages for you? Yeah, um, I thought about this and I actually think it has more to do with the Indian heritage bit than with the woman bit. I mean, India is a very masculine place to work. I used to struggle terribly to try to get gender balance in meetings and panels and the like. Mm. But generally speaking, apart from having to deal with some social conservatism, you know, I'd sometimes encounter a senior Indian interlocutor who was just not comfortable with speaking directly to a woman on business, so would direct all his comments to my male note taker, <laughs> which was interesting. But that look, you know, was more a source of amusement than really a bother. I still got the work done and it was fine. But I hadn't really calculated before I went to India the impact of my heritage. It's not something I'd even focused on terribly much in my life. And I spoke about this at a speech I delivered to the Asia Society, actually, in Melbourne last year. But the response by Indians to my heritage has been overwhelmingly positive. They generally were very interested in me, interested in where I came from. The former finance minister, Arun Jaitley, spent many conversations with me, trying to drill down to where exactly in the Punjab my family came from, those kinds of things. They really enjoy doing that sort of locating this. As a professional diplomat, it was a tremendous asset. I was, without even recognising it, able to intuit the right thing to do. And, you know, we're trained to actually learn how to do this cross-cultural engagement. I've done it in many other countries, but in India, I didn't even have to really work at it. It just happened very naturally. I was also able to go into spaces where diplomats generally didn't go because people didn't necessarily always see me as a foreigner. It really has caused me to reflect how little really we actively harness our multicultural communities to advance our international interests. I think our diaspora populations are a huge asset for foreign policy and we have barely scratched the surface. And it's not just me being able to go to India and, and to kind of really see it from the inside, which was hugely pleasurable and for me as well as professionally satisfying, but it's also about how we transmit who we are to the world when we actively promote our multicultural identity. I, this, is, this is one of our great assets and I just think we could use it more. Harinda, we've just got one more question for you and regular listeners of our podcast will know this is very much on brand for us. But in reading some of your past speeches, you, you made a comment at one point that was an aha for me moment because in an interview with your 
alma mater, the University of Sydney, late last year, you said that, quote, economics has stood me in really good stead. And you also observed that one, quote, cannot work on climate change without understanding economics in a very deep way, understanding how economic behaviour works and how incentives work. So, of course, my question is, to what extent do you think a training in economics or at least an understanding of economics is important to working on national security questions for Australia in today's world? Thank you so much for that gift of a question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift that keeps on giving from there. <laughs> so you've only read that article, but you didn't have to endure hours and hours in the office as I sort of lectured my colleagues at length on this issue. So I won't lecture you at length, but here's the point. Economics and geopolitics have always been interlinked, but nowhere and at no time, I think, have we seen it as sharply connected as we do now. And I think that one of the things you always find, I started to find particularly when I was in India, was that we're still talking in silos. Strategic policy makers and thinkers have a particular frame in which they look at the world, which doesn't really naturally absorb economic dynamics. And I think we're only seeing part of the picture if we're not seeing the economic dynamics of really what the impacts are, what the shifts in incentives and behaviours are. We intuit them because we bring security analytic tools to the story and that gets us part of the way, but it really doesn't get us the whole way. And really what we're talking about is a world in which the security story and the economic story is now deeply interwoven. It goes really on the other side of the equation. I was really interested in Heather Smith's comments at your last podcast where she said economists don't think enough about power. And she is absolutely right. Really what we need is a strategic or an economic analytic community that's bilingual, that can actually um, have both conversations in the same space. Because I think unless we do that, we're not fully and properly analysing the challenges we face and we're not coming up with complete policy responses and solutions to those. We're doing very well. I'm not saying we're doing badly, but we could do an awful lot better. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Harinda Sadhu, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a great pleasure. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AIIA intern Maddie Gordon for her help with research and audio editing and Rory Stedding for composing our theme music. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you again soon. 